Welcome to Point Two Law Review. My name's John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we're here. It's March 21st through March 24th, 2023. Everything's roses. Life is grand. It wasn't a long week, was it? No, not at all. <laughs> it was a super long week. <laughs> oh, wait. We're here. We're going to do this anyway. We're going through the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions, Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions uh, that were handed down for this week. And uh, we're going to start off, we're going to keep doing the executive summary. Uh, we can call it an ex parte summary, which I think is kind of like your your cool uncle in the 90s saying a party of your exes. <laughs> it's your ex parte. Ex parte. Ex parte like that. summary. That's good. Thank you. Now you're going to think about that yeah. whenever there's an ex parte anything. <laughs> it's a party parte of your exes. All right. Uh, what do we got? We got uh, Supreme Court. Give me one sentence on the first one. Write a first refusal. I love it. Okay. Annexation. Oh, sorry. I'm going to say the name. Darling Ingredients, City of Bellevue. Annexation. What does it mean? <laughs> this is so, like, oh, yeah. So I, I need to do. Yeah. So Slama versus Slama was mine. And that's, yeah, right. A first refusal. Okay. And then uh, State v. Uh, Devers. We're going to say Devers is what that is. Uh, this is a post conviction relief case. State v. Lewis. Michelle Lewis. Double Jeopardy, plea and bar, and an interesting adoption of uh, some interesting precedent. What? That long pause. I was like a plea and bar and an adoption <laughs> in one case? Wow. That would be unique. Um, no, this is... Uh, this is uh, that's a that's an interesting one. So uh, stay tuned for that. But we're going to start with the first case from the rest Supreme Court. Who do we got? Carson. Uh, so we start with um, Slama v. Slama, which is um, a little bit of uh, family feud over land, which is always a favorite. Uh, so here we have um, a contract for sale of land where a group of siblings, uh, three siblings, had a right of first refusal. Um, they argue that uh, this sale of land did not comply with the notice provisions of the uh, right of first refusal and therefore it was insufficient and um, that they uh, should be able to purchase this land under their right of first refusal and the district court agreed uh, the facts as they're relevant here is that there were eight parcels of land seven were held by uh, three of the siblings as tenants in common I, I believe I might be reading that part in there but anyway held together with the three siblings and then one parcel was held uh, solely by one of the other siblings subject to a right of first refusal from the other three siblings. Within that right of first refusal, uh, notice had to be communicated to the siblings by certified mail, and then they would have 14 days to uh, notify the other sibling, uh, Norman, um, in writing by certified mail of their intent to exercise that right. Um, here, they go through, and there's quite a few facts regarding this uh, right of first refusal. There's various exchanges um, about how notice was given, when it was given, and then uh, there was an issue here uh, regarding the sale being subject to a lease. Uh, the uh, sale that was subject to the right of first refusal was to a tenant. And so in the first contract for sale, there was no mention of a lease because it was selling to the person who had the lease. So you, they didn't need to mention that. But then in a later purchase agreement, they uh, do mention the lease and that becomes pretty important. And um, so here the, the Supreme Court goes through um, a lot of discussion regarding um, the 
actual right of first refusal contract and then um, if it was uh, complied with and what the notice provisions look like and everything so everybody who loves contracts um, you know this is a perfect uh, contracts hypo question it seems like it was just drawn up by professor denicola or professor schutz uh, here we have what is an offer what is not an offer um, you know what what <laughs> You know the back and forth here and uh, when did they have a duty to investigate what's a material term all those sorts of things um, and so there's a great discussion about that you can kind of get into the weeds on the contract law um, and again the Supreme Court here found that um, the disclosal of this lease in a subsequent offer made it a brand new offer and it wasn't that this lease was just um, a term of the um, contract it completely changed uh, the bulk of the contract and so not knowing about this lease um, was a, um, a material element or, or I guess not a material element but a, um, something that made it a brand new offer. Um, and then the other kind of interesting note at the end was that when the court uh, modifies and says, hey, you know, you need to give them the right of first refusal refusal here, they gave more days um, than the initial right of first refusal, which only gave 14 days. The court district court here gave them 16 days. Uh, for whatever reason maybe it was just a calendaring issue but the interesting piece there is that the supreme court says you know we don't have to worry about resolving uh, the issues here uh, because it was uh, without prejudice and so even though the district court maybe shouldn't have done it there was no prejudice and so we don't have to address that and they affirmed uh, but if you are a contracts person or if you're worried about rights of first refusal uh, a lot of things getting into the weeds there well fun have you ever seen the movie little giants yes do you remember uh, the big play that they had to win? Spoiler alert. Yes, I do remember the big play. Do you remember what it was called? Win. No, I don't remember that. It had a specific name, and the specific name was the Annexation of Puerto Rico. <laughs> and I swear to you, Carson Messersmith, every time <laughs> there is a city annexation issue, what goes in my head is the, the annexation, annexation of Puerto, Puerto Rico. Rico from Little Giants. It's true. Um, <clears throat> this is Darling Ingredients Incorporated, formerly known as Darling International Incorporated and Darling National LLC versus the city of Bellevue. And basically what the city of Bellevue wanted to annex some land and get some land um, that belonged to the Darling Ingredients Incorporated, which is a bioenergy company. I looked them up. I didn't know anything about them. And they wanted to annex some of their land. There was another landowner uh, who was a part of the initial proceedings but wasn't a part of this appeal. The plaintiffs sought a permanent injunction uh, against the city saying that, hey, um, you can't do this. Uh, you can't annex us. There's uh, certain reasons that you can't and you didn't follow specific procedure. And under the, in the trial court level, the district court agreed with them. It said, yeah, you can't annex this place. Um, so they the city of Bellevue appealed and they were um, successful in that appeal the first go around and they were reversed and remanded. So the city was able to annex the uh, ground. Now this is a second appeal because there were three grounds for which they uh, had to consider the first time. The court looked at the first two and didn't look at the third. And when they were reversed on the uh, first go around first appeal, and then they came back down. The court got everybody together in camera, in chambers, and said, um, basically, how am I supposed to deal with this re re remand? I don't want to I want to avoid a retrial. I don't want to give you another bite of the apple on the evidence. So do I just look everything and, and uh, you know come to a conclusion on that third issue that I didn't decide? And that's what the court ended up doing. 
So the uh, takeaway here a little bit is what does remand mean? What, what happens on a remand and what is the specific thing and the procedure that the uh, trial court can go through? And a remand on the, rem- on the merits resets the parties back to their original opinion, so uh, on their original stance. However, there's exceptions for that. And one of those exceptions is to always avoid a retrial for no good reason. So the court has discretion on how to manage the remand. As long as you're able to do everything that the uh, appellate court is telling you to do, you can procedurally figure that out however you want. So if you want evidence and if you want to offer new evidence, something you should do on the remand is uh, capitalize on that discretion, basically, and seek leave to amend your uh, you know, pleading documents, your complaint. You can con- uh, seek leave to conduct additional discovery or offer new evidence because that's also at the trial court's discretion. And to me, that's the biggest takeaway here is when you get something on remand, you can push a little bit because the district court has discretion to how they want to do whatever they need to do on remand. So they can take more evidence or otherwise if it helps them reach a, a decision on the merits. So that's the takeaway there. That's Darling Ingredients versus City of Bellevue. Ultimately here, uh, the city was successful on the third uh, item on appeal here, and the city is going to be able to annex uh, that property if they chose to do so. I don't know. But. So when it comes back down, you can change the chessboard a little bit. You can move some pieces. The uh, court has discretion to do that, and probably the, here they didn't push to do those motions to leave, but it might make sense, uh, given that discretion, to file those motions and get a ruling on those so that you can see whether so you it's can a, see, yeah. Yeah, see whether it's an abuse of discretion uh, on appeal. Okay. Uh, next case we come to is State v. Devers. Um, this was an appeal from a um, conviction of uh, felony murder where an individual, uh, Devers, had helped to plan a robbery and had drove uh, the getaway vehicle. Here it was um, in the uh, appeal procedural stance of being a post-conviction relief. Uh, the post-conviction court here dismisses um, saying that he essentially had um, not perfected the appeal and had not uh, laid out the appropriate uh, reasons um, for ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, the uh, Supreme Court says, no, that wasn't um, correct here. Uh, there was um, an issue uh, for appeal and there uh, was a claim to be reviewed but um, they end up affirming be, without an evidentiary hearing because there was no uh, constitutional infringement. Uh, the main thing here on appeal, which is interesting, and I uh, dropped this little uh, nugget just for uh, criminal law practitioners or people who find the criminal law interesting, um, was that while uh, Devers was convicted of felony murder, the actual alleged uh, killer here, a f- uh, gentleman by the name of Larry Goins, um, was never charged with murder and actually had the charges dropped prior to uh, Mr. Devers' um, prosecution and conviction of felony murder. And so um, the interesting piece there, and Mr. Devers argued that, you know, it should have been um, known to the jury that um, within his felony murder case, there never actually was a prosecution for uh, the actual murder of the individual underlying this robbery. And um, that was kind of the grounds for... um, 
the the argument that there was prosecutorial misconduct and ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, but, you know, even though that all happened, um, the Supreme Court says that even though they found it on uh, different reasons and um, that there was no constitutional issue, even though the post-conviction court was wrong, um, they affirmed uh, the judgment and denied uh, post-conviction relief without an evidentiary hearing. So uh, the alleged gunman was never charged or convicted of murder. Correct. But the accomplice was of felony murder. Correct. Interesting. Okay, um, I got State v. Michelle Lewis, and uh, this is procedurally interesting, and then it does, <clears throat> excuse me, formally adopt um, some significant law uh, that I'll get to here in a second, but this is an exception taken after a defendant's successful plea in bar. So the state took an exception up on appeal uh, following the defendant's successful uh, plea in bar. The defendant was originally charged and convicted of driving under the influence causing serious bodily injury and sentenced. Um, the facts are the driver was under the influence and a pass and hit a light pole and a passenger was severely injured. After the defendant pleads to the driving under the influence and serious bodily injury and is sentenced, the passenger dies as a result of the injuries. Um, and they agree, as a, uh, for purposes of this appeal at least, that those were as a result of the injuries. So that was nine months after the sentence for the driving and the influence of serious bodily injury was issued. So they charge the individual now, uh, Ms. Lewis, with a, a motor vehicular homicide. And uh, they file a plea in bar. And the district court found that that violated uh, double jeopardy provisions of the United States Constitution and the Nebraska Constitution under Blockburger. Um, Blockburger is an analysis you do for double jeopardy um, information purposes. So you uh, go through those elements of the offense and analyze those. However, now, this is, this is the interesting part. Just like the Monty Python Spanish Inquisition, you're not expecting a court to pull a 1912 case from the Philippines and find an exception to your analysis in order to overturn uh, your the plea and bar and send it back down for a trial on motor vehicular homicide. That's what happened here. They uh, uh, formally adopt, Nebraska formally adopts in this case, the state v. Michelle Lewis, the Diaz, I'm calling it Diaz, I don't, it might be Diaz, Diaz exception to the Blockburger analysis because the facts didn't exist at the time of the previous conviction, therefore, double jeopardy isn't violated. So they can go back and be convicted on motor vehicular homicide because the death didn't occur and wasn't present at the time of the previous conviction. So it's not double jeopardy. They can go back, it's reversed, and uh, they can be tried on the uh, motor vehicular homicide, which I think is a little wild. And you talk about bad phone calls, that's a bad phone call. Wow. Out of left field, we call that one. Yeah. So that's it for the rest of the Supreme Court. Okay. So now we're on to the Court of Appeals. Uh, first case we have here um, is State v. Uh, Garcia Contreras, which I just want to note quickly, um, you know, this is an 18-page opinion, but I believe there's only uh, maybe like six or eight head notes, which maybe should tell us how fact-heavy uh, some of these cases become. Um, this is kind of a... Uh, you know, a rough case, so I'll stay out of the, the weeds on it. Appeal from a, a first-degree sexual assault of a child. Um, usual issues on appeal. 
um, as far as sufficiency of the evidence and um, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel and things of that nature. The one part that I will note that's kind of interesting is um, that Garcia Contreras's um, initial uh, notice for appeal was filed by the same counsel he had at trial level, um, but then uh, quickly the cases uh, taken over by the public defender's office, I believe out of Lancaster County, or maybe it was Douglas County, but either way, uh, was taken over by the public defender's office. And so um, he's raising the ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal, and the state is arguing that he can't do that because he still has the same counsel on appeal because his trial counsel was the one who noticed appeal and was not allowed to uh, withdraw before this was pending. Uh, the Court of Appeals goes through a whole long analysis about, uh, you know, doing these appeals and, you know, that even though um, his original trial counsel was the one who perfected the appeal, he was not a part of the actual appeal process. And it's very clear from the record. And it's also clear from the record that, you know, there's nothing that Contreras or Garcia Contreras would have wanted to have raised that he hasn't been able to raise um, here. And so they do address uh, the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. But it is just kind of an interesting um, practice point, I guess or, um, you know, convergence of when you have the issue of, hey, you know, I need to get an appeal on file and, hey, I'm also being fired at the same time or I'm not, you know, intending to take this appeal up. And so, uh, you know, there is some good discussion on that, multiple pages worth of discussion on that um, appeal issue. So did the trial counsel who filed the notice of appeal, were they stuck doing the appeal? <laughs> no, they were not <laughs> stuck. Doing, see, and that was what was goofy is they were already off the appeal by the time it goes up. They just weren't allowed oh. to withdraw. And so the public defender's office is substantively doing all the appeal work. Right. But, you know, trial counsel with name was always going to be attached to it because they were the one who filed the notice. So interesting. It was more of an issue of, um, I guess, procedure or more in, um, you know, how it appeared than in substance. Right. All right. I have a State v. McTizick Jr. This is defendant was convicted of sexual assault in the first degree and three counts of attempted sexual assault in the first degree, sentenced to 40 to 50 on the sexual assault in the first degree and 19 to 20 on each of the attempts, and those were to run concurrent. The issue for uh, the appeal here is at sentencing, they, uh, the PSI or the PSR, I see it all the time. I think the the appeals courts, whenever you call it a PSI, they change it to PSR. PSR. So I think they want us to call it a PSR. <laughs> I'm getting that hint. I don't, I don't know. Do you know? No, I don't. But I, I think I'm going to stick with PSI. Well, I don't know. They I, they wrote PSR on the when you when you used to check it out back in the olden times that I'm from. You're now the olden days. Wow. It, it, it happens. Goes quick. <laughs> so sentencing on a psyche valve, uh, the psyche valve suggested that there was possible mild uh, cognitive impairment and it recommended a neuropsyche valve. So defense counsel says, hey, this recommends a neuropsyche valve. Let's continue the sentencing and order him to be uh, you know, committed to the Department of Correctional Services for 90 days under the certain statutes 29-2204 and 2204.03. And for further evaluation, let's come back in 90 days and the court can have all the information it needs after this uh, neuropsyche valve. Uh, court says, no, I have enough to decide what to do uh, in this case as far as the sentence is concerned. So the district court sentences. Um, the individual to those previously discussed uh, terms. So the district court has discretion whether to commit uh, or not commit under those 
commitment statutes. It's, it's kind of in the statute itself. So it says it's at the district court di- uh, discretion. And here the district court said no, and there's not enough evidence to find that it was an abuse of discretion as far as the district court is concerned, and that was affirmed. And again, the the excessive sentence argument failed because it was in the statutory range. That is State v. McTizick, Jr. Okay, the next case we come to is Lewis versus Goslin. This is an appeal uh, from the District Court of Washington County regarding um, a purchase agreement for uh, property. Uh, here, the district court had found that the Goslins were entitled to specific performance and um, closing, and so they um, had essentially said that the um, or that the yeah that the Goslins had to. Um, were able to get all the rights and uh, title and uh, interest in this property. And then the uh, Lewis's appeal from this, you know, there's a ton of facts regarding the, you know, procedural history, the purchase agreement, um, you know, various communications that went back and forth between the parties um, and lots of issues there. Again, not a ton of law, um, lots and lots and lots of facts. The interesting thing that I will say is that they address um, mootness in cases like this, where uh, the district court had ordered that all of the, you know, title be transferred. And so here, uh, you know, the property that was seeking relief at the district court level had gotten that relief. And so now they own uh, the property and fee simple. And so, um, you know, it, it would seem like, hey, you know, what in the world do we do again on remand if this gets sent back down? And the Court of Appeals says that, you know, while they were legally forced into, you know, getting rid of this property and now the other party owns the property, that alone doesn't make something moot. And just because it might be um, difficult to, um, you know, have something happen on, uh, remand or, you know, just because there might be difficulty in, um, you know, making uh, an outcome that legally makes sense on remand, that doesn't render something moot. And so um, they address that in a little bit of length. And so if you have an issue like that with a property case, uh, that might be worth taking a look at just from a jurisdictional standpoint, either on appeal or at um, the district court level. Uh, But other than that, it was affirmed. And um, yeah, I think that's kind of the the gist. All right, State v. Vogel. It's a uh, appeal from a third degree a domestic, or excuse me, third degree assault on an officer, which is a three A felony. Uh, defendant was sentenced to thirty to thirty six months, and uh, for also resisting arrest uh, was sentenced to twelve months, and those were consecutive to a third case that was in county court, a third degree assault on an officer, but they were concurrent with each other. Uh, here, the defendant argues that it was excessive because um, they were consecutive. And the plaintiff, the state, says that it was plain error because there was no determinate sentence given and no post-release um, provision for uh, as part of the sentence. So the uh, court spends one paragraph on the uh, defendant's argument and says, um, you know, it, it was... It was actually concurrent with each other, so your argument uh, doesn't work as far as this appeal is concerned. And they, um, oh, as because they were consecutive to another case, there was no error and there was no excessive sentence. So there's that one. However, they did find plain error um, for not de- issuing a determinate sentence and no, ordering no post release, so they sent that back down. That's it. Okay. Uh, the next case we come to is Chan versus Wabuk. Um, this is an appeal from a um, 
award of joint physical and legal custody, so a, a custody modification um, where the court had uh, significantly increased one party's parenting time going from uh, weekend visits to um, uh, week on, week off. And so, again, here, as uh, most of these divorce custody modification cases are, very, very fact-intensive. Um, so I won't get into the weeds on any of this, but uh, one of those cases where uh, if you want to look at some facts that weigh towards uh, modifying and increasing parenting time versus not increasing parenting time and some of the facts that uh, came out in value there, uh, this is one of those cases uh, where you get another chance to uh, glean some facts um, and applying um, for the, the law regarding uh, visitation time and uh, modification of custody and parenting time. There you go. This is State v. Pentoja. This is the uh, defendant was convicted of motor vehicular homicide, and he alleged ex excessive sentence and said that he didn't get all the uh, good time credit that he was qualified for. He was ordered to, he was given credit for 13 days uh, time served. And he was actually picked up on another matter um, for distribution, I think, of a marijuana. And then uh, wherever this was, where was this? This was in Sarpy County. They have a cool thing called Young Adult Court, which I'm assuming is some kind of alternative response court. Um, I'm not familiar with it, um, but it sounds like an interesting idea. Young Adult Court Program. So he entered the Young Adult Court Program, and then once he was arrested on the marijuana charges... Um, he only had the 13 days in uh, for the credit, and the other stuff would apply towards the other crime that he was held on. So the, you only get good time for credit. Uh, you only get good time credit for conduct that led to the conviction uh, that you're receiving the sentence from. So that's the takeaway from that case. Okay. Uh, next case is uh, in the interest of um, Echo. Um, here, this is an appeal from a termination of parental rights. Um, normal. Um, evaluations on uh, the grounds for termination and then uh, best interests. Um, it is affirmed as far as that goes. Um, the one uh, piece to note here is that there was um, an argument for a goodbye slash final visitation. Um, and here the juvenile court had stated that um, it was leaving it between um, the parent and uh, the discretion of the therapist. And the court of appeals says um, that the juvenile court could not do that. Uh, specifically, it says that this court has held that the juvenile court retains jurisdiction to award continued contact uh, to a parent whose parental rights have been terminated while recognizing that once parental rights are terminated, a parent has no standing to assert entitlement to continued visitation. And so here the uh, trial court had a non-delegable non -dele duty to determine questions of custody and parenting time of minor children according to their best interests. And so here the court had to say whether or not uh, the visitation happened or didn't happen. They couldn't leave it up to the therapist. Interesting. So um, this is Scrogans v. Mossbrucker. The plaintiff here, Mr. Scrogans, filed a paternity action. The defendant mom moved to, uh, after he filed, the defendant mom moved to Washington and then to Idaho, which triggers the UCCJEA. And uh, that uh, sub book of surprises, I suppose, uh, that uh, you can look into to decide what kind of, um, what state is the one that has jurisdiction over the child. So there's a number of factors for that. Um, the district court here found that it did have jurisdiction, but that it was an inconvenient forum, uh, that, that since it was like, I think two and a half years after it was filed, that the, the better forum 
to discuss what is in the child's best interest would be Idaho at that problem uh, at that point. So there were problems getting the defendant served. That was also an issue here. Um, but ultimately, it has some really good, frankly, discussion of the UCCJEA. So if you have a case like that, which involves uh, states, and you need to look at what you need to do in order to prove uh, which state has jurisdiction or uh, whether a uh, forum would be more convenient there or here or whatever your uh, side may be, this is uh, has some value uh, from my perspective. Next case we come to is State versus Hernandez. Uh, this is an appeal from um, a uh, denial of a motion to transfer a case uh, to the juvenile court. Um, another one of these cases, it seems like we've had a long uh, run of these cases, so I won't get too far into the facts. Uh, here, um, Hernandez was um, alleged to have shot into a vehicle that ended up uh, killing an individual. He was 16 years old at the time. Um, the district court denied his motion uh, to transfer the case to uh, juvenile court. Uh, what I will say about this opinion is it um, goes through in depth um, the facts um, and background of Hernandez and then um, very in depth um, in the analysis section goes through every one of the uh, factors, how they were weighed and what they weighed towards, uh, whether it being the transfer to uh, juvenile court or um, you know, staying in district court. And then um, the general evaluation of abuse of discretion, which is the standard that these are reviewed under. That's it for that one. Is that it? That's it. That's it for everybody? Is that it for you? Yeah. Is it? It is? Wow. Good. All right. Well, that's another week. Uh, oh, do you get the Nebraska Lawyer magazine? You know, I think I am a Nebraska lawyer, and I think I do get the magazine. I also received this magazine, and, and uh, I was perusing it, and it had a great article featured called Citing Unpublished Cases. And how many times have you heard, uh, I can't cite that, that was unpublished? All the time. So, Mr. John McWilliams uh, from Gross Welch Marks Claire PCLLO had a great article about how, yeah, you can, right? Yeah, wonderful article. You can... Uh, you can cite them, and not just um, in the super limited scope that you used to be able to cite them in. Um, it's a little bit broader now. Yeah, so if you find something here uh, that might be of value in a court of appeals unpublished opinion, it might you might be able to use it. Yeah, and isn't that neat? Now yeah. we just read them and we can use them. And I got to say, <clears throat> these endnotes are, are fantastic. What wonderful. Primo you, endnotes. You read the endnotes? Of course. Wow. Anyway, that's Point Two Law Review, brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. We got offices in Kearney, Minden, and Holdridge. Uh, I'm John Brandt. I'm Carson Messersmith. Go back to episode one uh, for our disclaimer and have a great week. Yeah, thanks everybody. 